So there's an outline in your bulletin. Uh, I wrote my sermon very late this week, so it's not written in there for you. But if you are an outline person, let me give that to you. Part one is let go. Can you say that with me? Let go. Say it like you mean it, church. Let go. Let go. Part two, learn as you go. Say that with me. Learn as you go. Part three, keep going no matter what. Say that with me. Keep going no matter what. Uh, That outline I completely ripped off from a book I've been reading by Todd Bolsinger called Canoeing the Mountains, which is about Lewis and Clark and about leadership. I told you, I wrote it late this week. We had some sickness in our house. You're welcome. Here's your thesis. At the mountain, we find new birth. At the mountain, we find new birth. Let's talk about what that means. First of all, let's set the stage. Let's talk about who Nicodemus is. How's this guy enter into the picture? If you have your Bible, turn with me to John chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, there's some on the back table. You are welcome to grab one and take one home. John chapter 3 Right before this, Jesus has kind of come on the scene. John has this amazing introduction of Jesus. He ditches the genealogy completely. He just starts telling you about who this person is and what he's come to do. Jesus has recruited some disciples. He's performed this miracle at the wedding. He turns water into wine, saves the party. He's trashed the temple. John puts that very early in Jesus' ministry. Remember, he goes into the temple. He throws out the money changers. He kicks out all their stuff. That moment has occurred, and now Jesus meets this man who we don't think he's ever met him before, and they have this dialogue. So listen now to these words. I'll start in John 3 and verse 1. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by what, church? By night, and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who's come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Whole bunch of stuff has just been revealed about Nicodemus in those few sentences. First thing we learn about him, he's a Pharisee. He's a leader of the Jews. He belongs to a particular sect, a particular order, if you will, within the Jewish community. And as our, we've talked in this sermon series about how Jesus has come to the people on the margins. This is not somebody on the margins. This is someone who's at the very center of power. He has got all the influence. There are tons of things going well for him in his life. He was kind of like a pastor. He was educated. He devoted his life to leading people in his religious community. He would have been looked up to with a lot of respect, very public role. So we know he's a Pharisee. We know he's a leader. But then there's this very non-public thing that he does, which is what? Come to Jesus when, church? At night. Now, we live in a 24-7 culture, right? Like grocery stores are open all the time. You can go out at night. It's not weird. In this day, going out at night would not have been that ordinary. It wouldn't have been totally out of the ordinary. But think about it. No streetlights, no sidewalks, not a real strong sense of the rule of law, so it might not have been super safe for you to go out at night. If you're a public figure, going out at night is kind of like, wait, what are you doing here? Nicodemus is being drawn out. He's moving toward Jesus because something is compelling him to break certain rules, make certain changes that he might not otherwise. He's looking up at the mountain. He's looking up at who Jesus is and what he represents. And he has to go. He has to move toward it. He's well-versed in the scriptures. He's memorized the Bible. He knows the details and the nuances of what he's talking about. When he says, I recognize God's power in you, he's not just whistling Dixie. He knows what God's power is and what it's like. 
But he's saying this in public to a person he barely knows. You're doing things that shouldn't be possible, and I'm an expert on what should be possible. I look around the room, and I see people in here who are subject matter experts. I see people who have PhDs. I see people who have studied deeply into a subject material. What is the one thing you do when you have been christened, knighted, if you will, as a subject matter expert? What is the one thing you should never, ever do if you are an expert in your field? You should never admit that you don't understand something. Ever. And I, I, I feel that pressure for those of you that do have that title and that designation. That's really, really hard. This is a subject matter expert throwing his hands up in the air and saying, I don't know what to do with you, Jesus. You are doing things that only God can do. What's the response that we don't see him making? The response is this. He needs to let go, but he's not. Not yet. He needs to let go. What's Jesus maybe sort of nudging him toward letting go of? His expertise. His proficiency in being able to articulate the theological nuances of God's power. He is being challenged to make room for what God is up to in his life. He's meeting Jesus, he's seeing the Savior right in front of him, and he's not yet willing to make that move. To say, all right, I'm going to throw it all down, I'm going to let it all go, and I'm going to follow you. Other people have responded to Jesus like that, the disciples certainly did. It takes a little while longer for the wheels to turn for Nicodemus. If you're like me, and it takes a while for the wheels to turn, you're in good company. Nicodemus is very much like that. And to make room in his life, he actually has to let go of a few things. How many of you are familiar with the ministry of Alcoholics Anonymous? It's touched your life. It's touched the life of someone you love. Amazing ministry. I want to show the first three steps from Alcoholics Anonymous up on the screen. Step one, this is what everybody who steps into AA needs to agree to and come to terms with to enter into healing and recovery. Step one, we admit we're powerless over alcohol, that our lives have become unmanageable. Step two, we come to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Step three, we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to whom? The care of God as we understand him. What's the through line in all of this? Let go. You want to be healed? You want to experience recovery from addiction? Alcoholics Anonymous says step one, step two, step three, let go. There are other steps. There's plenty more to do in Alcoholics Anonymous, but I love that the first three steps are all about let go. Because what happens when we let go? We make room for God to do something else. Church, what can you let go of this week? And I'm thinking specifically in our day, high stress, professional culture, we do a lot of this. You see the white knuckles? We do a lot of white knuckling. We do this when we're in traffic, do we not? If, you, if you're new here, get on 405. You'll understand what I mean. We white-knuckle our money. We white-knuckle our children. We white-knuckle our career. We white-knuckle our expectations for ourselves. I've got to do this. If I'm not doing this, then I'm missing out. Let it go. Stop white-knuckling whatever it is, money or sex or beauty or power. It is confusing and it is hard, but it is the sound of our calling as the church. Not to release everything that we know, not to jettison our identity as followers of Jesus, not to say as a community at Bethany, we are about inviting people to God, community, and wholeness. We're not letting go of that. But when we face the, mount- when we face the mountain, we've been river people forever. There are things that we need to let go of. Church, what are you being called to let go of? My encouragement, step one of that process this week, sit down. 
Can you say that with me? Sit down. Stop moving. Just take a minute and sit with God. Ask God, God, this guy told me, my pastor told me I need to let something go. Let me encourage you. You cannot do that while you're washing dishes. Sit down. Take a minute. Ask God to really speak to you. Create some space to really hear from him. And then I think you'll have a clear sense of how to let go. I think that's part of what got Nicodemus into trouble in this moment. He didn't slow down. He just kept talking. Have you ever done this where you just keep talking and keep talking and keep talking? And someone's like, yeah, what you're doing right now? Yeah, exactly. Sit down. Let go. Ask God to make that room in your life. That's part one. Now let's talk about part two. Learn as you go. Can you say that with me? Learn as you go. Uh, I want to share the rest, a little bit more of this passage, but in the New Living Translation. So this will be up on the screen, and I'll read it for us. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, unless you were born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What do you mean? exclaimed Nicodemus. How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Humans can reproduce only by human, only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. I think that's the end, right? Okay. Jesus is, I love this because it conveys a little bit more of the emotion that's happening in this moment. He's frustrated. Nicodemus is trying to get his head around this mountain that's been dropped in front of him, and he doesn't understand. Jesus, why are you challenging me to let go? I need to let go of my expertise. I need to make this stuff happen. Now you're telling me I need to be born again to see the kingdom of God? What is that about? Well, like we talked about last week, the kingdom of God is where God's rule and God's reign are unmistakable. You can't miss it. When you are in a place where God's kingdom is breaking out, you see things like peace and justice and restoration and hope and fullness. So if we want to be a part of that, we have to be born again, new birth. What is that supposed to mean? For a lot of us, growing up in and around the church, new birth, being born again, carries a whole bunch of stuff that goes along with it. It might be a lot of baggage for you. And if so, that's okay. Sometimes we've connected the idea of new birth to just this one-time thing, and I believe it is that. And I believe the scriptures reflect that, that people's lives can be changed in an instant, transformed. You weren't a follower of Jesus before, and now you are. We'll hear a testimony about that a little bit later on. That is a new birth, for sure. But another translation of this is born from above, born for a different purpose. In other words, biological birth happening, right? Nicodemus is saying, what do you mean born again? I can't go back and do that over. My mom doesn't want to do that, and I don't want to do that. And Jesus is saying to him, good, you're good at biology. I'm talking about the spiritual life. I'm talking about being born again. And this process of being born from above is not just a one-time thing. Martin Luther has a great explanation of this. Let me just share this with us. This came from a commentary I was reading this week. Luther said this, Christ's words are as if to say, no, my dear Nicodemus, I am not moved by your beautiful words. You must give up your old life and become a new person. And this newness is not concerning what you must do or not do, but concerning what you must become. It aims not at the performance of new works, but first at being born anew. Not a different life, but a different birth. Not a different life, but a different birth, a different start. How many times have you had something happen to you in work or in some part of your life and you're like, okay, I should know this. With parenting, right? One of your kids 
freaks out on you and you, you know, reprimand them kind of harshly, oh, I should know better than to do that. A problem comes up at work and you respond to it aggressively or you ignore it. Oh, I should have known better. I shouldn't have done that. Anybody else respond that way? I think that's like a firstborn child thing. Like, that's me. Okay. That's not the new birth. That's us dragging ourselves through the mud and not being happy with where we are right now. The new birth is this journey toward who God wants you to become. And it's not who we are right now, and that's okay. Only in Jesus Christ can human beings have this wonderful kind of coexistence of God loves me exactly for who I am right now, and he is calling me to something greater. The two things coexist perfectly in Jesus Christ because we know that new birth calls us in a different direction. Becoming who God wants us to be is the key here. And he hopes for this. Jesus wants this for Nicodemus, but Nicodemus doesn't hear it. At least in this moment, he doesn't. So, great, fine. New birth, born again, whatever. Tell me how to make this work in my life. How do I go beyond this one-time moment that I had where I committed my life to Christ at a camp, where I recommitted my life to Christ, where I dedicated one of my children? These are important things. But my encouragement is this section, this heading, learn as you go. That's how you can keep stepping into what the new birth is meant to be. It's not meant to be just a one and done thing. It's meant to be something that keeps changes us. For example, there's an amazing collection of small groups in this church. I love our small groups. I love checking in with them and seeing how things are going. One of our small groups is doing something pretty remarkable to keep growing and keep building their life together. This is a group of people that are mostly on the younger side. They're professionals. Some of them are married. Some are single. And so their curriculum for their small group has always been to study the Bible, to pray for each other, to have that intentional fellowship. But now, they just emailed me about this this week, which is so cool. They are going to start inviting people into their small group as visitors, older people, wiser people. And they're going to ask them, how'd you do it? How'd you follow Jesus faithfully? How did he teach you? When you were in despair, when you were frustrated with your job, when you were sick of this, when you were tired of this, how did you keep following him? How did he show you the way forward? Their theory is that the people who have followed Jesus the longest will have the most wisdom, and this community will learn as they go. I love that. I love that they're just up and doing that. I pray God's blessings on that. That is one way to seek the new birth, this new way of life. You keep learning. You keep growing. You keep drinking from the fountain that is Jesus' wisdom. He promised that rivers of living water would flow out of him. And we are called to receive that. So how are you going to do that this week, church? How are you going to learn as you go? Pray. Ask God for opportunities to learn as you go to your summer classes, as you go to your job, as you travel, as you see family. God, make this an opportunity to learn as I go. Read something challenging. Sit with the scriptures. Look for the new birth to be pouring out into your life and the lives of others and be able to lift it up. So that's part two. Now let's talk about part three. Keep going no matter what. What's the first part? Two words. Let go. Say it with me, church. Let go. Part two, learn as you go. Say it with me. Learn as you go. You notice a theme there? Part three, keep going no matter what. We all know too well that just choosing to set a direction, I'm going to take, take on this diet, I'm going to do new exercise, I'm going to read the Bible every day, that goes great until we encounter friction and resistance. So what do we do in the face of resistance? That's what this section is trying to answer. Keep going no matter what. I would encourage you this week to read through the rest of John chapter 3. We're not going to go back into the text for now. 
But what I want you to know is this dialogue does not wrap up neatly with Jesus and Nicodemus. There isn't some like happy denouement at the end. They just kind of end their dialogue. And so you're left hanging a little bit. If you're like, wait, what happened to Nicodemus? Where does he go? Thankfully, the scriptures give us two reference points that we'll touch on very, very briefly to help us learn this point of keep going no matter what. Skip ahead in your Bibles to John chapter 7. So grab your Bible again. Remember that thing? John 7. And here's the context. It's a little bit later in Jesus' ministry. We don't know how far along, but maybe still within the first year of his ministry. And he's not quite headed toward the cross yet, but he's doing amazing things, and the tension is rising all around him. People are coming after him. They, they start to talk about how to take him down, and specifically the Pharisees are feeling this threat more and more. So what do people do when they feel threatened? They have a meeting. The Pharisees are having a meeting, and they're talking about what to do. They are struck by the fact that people are calling Jesus Messiah. They're really getting upset about this. They try to figure out what to do. They're saying, the crowds are following him. What can we do to stop him? And then, picture the meeting. You've been in a meeting like this. Things are getting hot and heavy. People are starting to yell out ideas. That's a terrible idea. We should do this. No, we should do this. We've all been in that meeting, right? Lots of fun. And then, like Henry Fonda in 12 Angry Men in the white suit, somebody in the back says this, listen to this, starting in verse 50 of chapter 7. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus before and was one of them, asked this question, Our law does not judge people without first giving them a hearing to find out what they are doing, does it? And that's it. That's all we hear from him in this moment. What's Nicodemus doing? In a conversation with his peers about Jesus, he reminds them of a seemingly simple fact that like our law, their law is built around due process. This guy deserves a fair shake. We're not giving him a fair shake. We can't arrive at a verdict without hearing from him. And we know from John chapter 3 that Nicodemus is willing to kind of bend and break the rules when, he's, when it suits him. So I don't think he's being sort of the good old boy here that's like, wait, 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 we've got to play by the rules. I think he's giving a tacit but forceful endorsement of Jesus by saying, let's not go after this guy yet. He's buying Jesus some time, is he not? He's given him a little bit of wiggle room. He's given him the opportunity to do more ministry, heal more people, touch more people's lives. He's going to say to Jesus, in effect, by these actions, Jesus, keep going. Keep going, no matter what. Keep going toward the truth. And it's his way of moving toward the truth by using his power to make this happen. In his own way, he's still going after Jesus. And it's an amazing thing to watch, and that's not where it ends. This is where it ends. Turn with me to John chapter 19. This is the very end of the gospel. Jesus has been put on trial. The Pharisees finally get what they want. He's crucified. It's a terrible, dark moment. And anyone who's following Jesus in this moment is like, oh, that's it. Game over. We've lost. And then in John 19, verse 38 Two people come to kind of pick up the pieces to take care of Jesus' body, to honor him. And the gospel records this. After these things, Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, though a secret one, because of his fear of the Jews. Does that sound familiar? He asked Pilate to let him take away the body of Jesus. Pilate gave him permission, so he came and removed his body. 
And Nicodemus, who had first come to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, weighing about a hundred pounds. They took the body of Jesus and wrapped it with the spices and linen cloths, according to the burial custom of the Jews. Have you ever had to carry a bag of cement? Those are usually 50 pounds. When you're in the middle of carrying a bag of cement that weighs 50 pounds, you say to yourself, why am I doing this? Imagine carrying twice that for a man that you'd encountered one time, for someone that you saw changing people's lives. You don't carry a 100-pound bag for some casual acquaintance. You carry a 100 pounds for someone you love, for something you believe in. It's more than carrying a bag of cement. It's honoring a man who had changed his life. Something has changed for Nicodemus. He's experienced the new birth one more step, one more stride in that direction. He's looked up at the mountain, he's looked at his canoe, and he's decided, you know what, I'm not a river person anymore. I want to climb this mountain. I want to move toward Jesus, whatever the cost. And make no mistake, there's a cost for him in this moment. As a Pharisee, touching a dead body was a major no-no. Jews did not touch dead bodies, and Pharisees certainly did not touch dead bodies. This is something they paid people to do. But here's Nicodemus saying, yeah, I'm a Pharisee. Yeah, I got this job. I got this stuff. I need to go do this. I need to drag 100 pounds of stuff to honor my friend. He's going to keep going no matter what, even in total despair. Have you experienced despair this week, church? Like, despair is different than sadness. Despair is different than I'm just discouraged right now. Despair is that pit of your stomach, I really don't know what to do. I'm at the end of my resources. That may be where you're looking up at a mountain going like, I don't know. I sure did like the river. I don't know. Make no mistake that despair is real in the life of our community. And our calling is never to turn a blind eye to it, but to enter into it together. And despair, even in this moment, is the birthplace of hope for Nicodemus and for Joseph of Arimathea and for everybody who would hear about the resurrection in just a few days, just a few days. So if you're in the midst of your despair, maybe you're in that just a few days until Jesus comes and brings you something new. Maybe that's what you need to pray for this week. Maybe like Nicodemus, like Lewis and Clark, you're making a choice as you face the mountain, whatever the mountain is. You can get mad at the mountain. You can yell at the mountain. You can kick at it. You can fight it. The mountain's got a lot of fight. Or you can find a way to adapt, not to jettison who we are, not to take away from who we've been in Jesus Christ, but to keep going, to let go, to learn as we go, and to keep going no matter what. My first year and a half here at Bethany, there were great things, but I was looking up at that mountain every day going, I have no idea what I'm doing. And now I just say that a little bit less. But I got to live into the things that God had already built into me. And may this be an encouragement to you. You know what you need to do to change. You know what you need to do to change. For me, I needed to get on my horse and start pursuing people. Start getting back to that first love that drew me into ministry, loving people intentionally, welcoming them into the family of God, and showing them that the kingdom is real. That starts with meeting people for coffee. 
That starts with launching a small group and bringing people into our home. It starts with building partnerships across the community, like what we're going to do with Inglewood Press when we do Vacation Bible School. I'm not taking credit for all that. I'm saying those were my pathways into climbing the mountain. And what will yours be? Where will that new birth come? Because new birth comes at the base of the mountain when we're looking up and we don't know what to do. And will we look at it with excitement and joy? Will we follow Nicodemus' example that the new birth takes time? It takes time to live into. It's not a one and done thing. You can't microwave discipleship. How will you step into that this week, church? I would invite you to reflect on that, to hold that out in prayer, to pray, God, make me more like Nicodemus. Make me more like Lewis and Clark. As I face this mountain, help me throw down my paddles. Oh, they're such good paddles. Help me put aside my canoe. I really love that canoe. And help me start climbing. Because I believe we're on the cusp of a huge mountain, Bethany. A huge new change, a huge new season in our life together as a church. And I can't wait to climb the mountain with you.